My name is Steve Gilman, and for decades I've been helping brands engage with their audiences. On this podcast, we'll connect the dots in the fast-paced world of branding by talking with entrepreneurs, leaders, and marketers on the front lines of telling brand stories. Today we're talking with George Tannenbaum, ad industry veteran, respected copywriter, author of the blog Ad Aged, and founder of George Co. In this episode, we discuss big agency life, how creating content is your portfolio, and the rewards of being independent. So my guest today is George Tannenbaum, a true veteran of the advertising industry and kind of an icon and copy of copywriting and creative for me, and the author of Ad Aged, one of the most insightful, well-written daily blogs on planet Earth, in my opinion, and that is not hype. If you don't follow uh, Ad Aged and you don't follow George, um, after this episode, I, I will have links and I implore you to go follow this gentleman because his writing is impeccable and he's at... at the same time insightful and hilarious. So he is the chief George officer of George Co., which is my favorite job title anyone has. And if you're around the advertising industry, you probably know George. And if you're not, his resume reads like a who's who in advertising. I think you've worked for all the great brands, George. Yeah, I got lucky. Yeah. <laughs> so you started at Lowe and Partners in the early 80s. Yeah. You yeah. worked for Rosenfeld and Sirowitz, and you were the youngest senior VP and head of creative. Ali, Garga- Ali Gargano, right. uh, FCB, uh, Lowe and Partners, Publicis, Hal Rainey, RGA, Digitas, and then a nice long stint of executive director of copy chief for Ogilvy. Right. And uh, now George Co. Yes. So that is quite a career path. That's what happens, yeah, when you last 40 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How do you think you've gotten to a point where your voice is so clear and you're so fearless? I mean, I think the fearless thing, you know, I mean, I think the the honest answer is is probably also the cynical one is um, no one can hurt me at this point. I mean, they've already kind of kicked me out of the business for um, uh, maybe a combination of being old, expensive and opinionated. But, you know, there's there's no one left to kind of I mean, I don't in, in the past, you know, maybe I had to. I mean, we live in a very sensitive age, of course, but in the past, you know, I'd have to worry about, um, you know, agency politics or holding company politics or people I'm working with politics. I don't have any of that anymore. I was pretty, I think, candid when I was still within Ogilvy or WPP. Um, but I think when I was let go, um, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing they can do to hurt me. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm really not in a way, and it's partly a function of today's economy. I'm really not competing with them anymore. We're kind of in radically different businesses. Right. You know, so yeah, I have friends there still and, and associates and I don't want to be, you know, a jerk, but, um, most, I mean, most people, you know, if if they let their hair down, even if they work for a holding company, they're they're kind of in agreement. I mean, it's 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 about as corrupt as it can get. Yeah, and it's a cold world too. Yeah, and you know they're not. You know, if you if you just look at the economics of the business, um, you, you know, you can see why the whole thing is suffering. I mean, the economic. I, I mean, I'm I'm not an economist, thank God, but. I don't know how the econ- the economics work out, and I've been saying that for years. I mean, 
when Sorrell was around at WPP in one year, if you remember, he made literally made a hundred million dollars and that's what they're announcing. And you, you walk around the halls and people are pulling their hair out at nine o'clock at night and you say, well, they could have paid Sorrell $90 million and they'd have $900, $100,000 creatives here. Yeah, right. But they've chosen. So, you know, they, they chose that. Um, so, yeah, I think most people see it. They might not think about it. Yeah, that holding company philosophy. And I think one of the reasons your messages and what you talk about and the way you talk about it resonates so well with me and a lot of people is that, you know, it's a, it's a message, whether it's about holding companies with advertising agencies or whether it's just about corporate America. Yeah, it's corporate America. You know, the battle for efficiency over human, you know, taking care of humans and being humane and paying people what they're worth, it's a big deal. I mean, when, when, the, when a CEO or a president of a company makes, you know, $100 million and everyone else yeah. is underpaid, that's just wrong. Well, the, the last actual data I have comes from the Wall Street Journal because about once a year they do a report on CEO pay. And Michael Roth, who is the CEO of IPG, is, he's re, I guess he's retired now. He's probably still being paid. But his annual income was, um, I believe, 260 times what the median employee made. And, you know, you can do the math. I mean, that's, that's a lot. And, you know, would he be, he'd still be living on Park Avenue yeah. if he was making 150 times. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so I don't, it's not, and I, I, I understand you can look at it from another point of view, he's creating a lot of wealth and shareholder value and all that stuff. But you do have to think of your employees sometimes, especially I pick on Michael Roth a little bit because he was one of the 219 executives from all over the country who, sh who signed a document about the economy needs to be more about more, more than about shareholder value, it needs to be about stakeholder value. And I haven't seen any, I mean, there was, if you remember about three years ago, there was a big uh, movement. It lasted about a week. Um, and people were talking about, you know, stakeholder value, like what's in it for us and our family. And of course it's more dire in other industries because, you know, vacated factories and towns that were built about around a GM plant and another GM plant leaves and what's left. Um, but, you know, it's still, this is the industry that affects me. Yeah, so that's what you talk about. Yeah, but I think the I I, I enjoy the just your tone and the way that you you write and um, because it's so honest. And I think the freedom that you have now that you're working for yourself, a lot of people would maybe be <laughs> afraid of that. You know, like I'm working by myself. I think I have to be even more conservative with what I say to the world. But I, you've really embraced it and gone full out, just honest George all the time from what I see. You know, it's, it's funny because when I was still at Ogilvy, um, I was friendly with a woman who had worked for many years at Ogilvy London and had done very well there. And, and you know, they fired her for being outspoken or whatever yeah. it was. And I have to say, probably my, I was, you know, at Ogilvy for a while, my last three or four years, because I, I was, you know, there weren't a lot of 60 year olds around yeah, right. and making kind of a, an older salary. And, um, and I knew I was probably causing some people grief with the blog. And she said, George, you have nothing to worry about. Your brand is better than Ogilvy's brand. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not saying that to be an ass, but it's probably, I mean, what have they done with their brand? Yeah, they've, not they've a lot. destroyed it. 
Yeah. Um, so, I mean, they can, I mean, they're not going to attack me. It's the classic, um, challenger brand. I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a one guy thing. They, they're, uh, you know, whatever they are, 20,000 people. Um, so they're not going to attack me, but I've had discussions. I'm friendly with certain people like way up in WPP and one of them, I'm not going to mention his name. Um, he has no hair though. Um, <laughs> but he, he told me to cool it a little bit and we know each other for 35 years. And I'm like, wait a second, you worked on, you know, at other agencies, you worked on Burger King, you didn't cool it towards McDonald's. You worked on mini, you didn't cool it towards you know, big cars, you worked on Microsoft, you didn't cool it towards Apple. I mean, you, we go after, we're trained yeah. to go after enemies. Right. That's how you equalize someone else's advantage. Yeah, and I think you going out on your own and, and kind of like even expanding your voice more, there was one thing you wrote that, uh, you know, when you, when you discover somebody and you start reading their stuff, there was one thing you wrote that I was now hooked forever. And it was your analogy to, you know, I've owned my own company for, this is 27 years now. So, wow. uh, you know, completely independent. It's our own agency, but we're right. a different breed of cat than the big global, you know, the, right. the big guys. We're sort of regional, semi-national. So we can do our own thing, but I've always been right. fiercely independent. But you wrote something about paths of glory and this 3-4-3 ratio that I had never seen anyone put it into words. And the second I read that, I was like, yep. That is, makes 100% sense, and I agree with that message entirely. Will you talk about that a little bit, that analogy? You know, it, it's it's funny. I mean, there's a – I mean, not to – again, not to sound pompous or anything, but there's a lot – there was a lot in those, like, two little um, metaphors. Yeah. Pa you know, paths of glory, I was always struck because um, it's the uh, – what Kubrick does – is he juxtaposes kind of the opulence of executive management. In this case, it was the French uh, military elite during World War One, and they're housed literally in chateaus and castles, you know, from the, from the Versailles era. And then you cut to a trench and, you know, there's no one like Kubrick to get you know, grit and dirt under his fingernails, you feel the filth and you smell it and the decay and the bodies and the mud and the lice. And even if all he was doing was cutting back and forth between the two, almost like when you're at the optometrist, is this better or is this better? Is yeah. this better? Is this better? He's making a point about whatever you want to call him. If you're Bernie Sanders, man, the 1%, or if you're an advertising, um, you know, the holding company versus or the C-level versus the rank and file, or if you're, you know, um, you know, from uh, a red territory, even like us versus the elites. I mean, there's that kind of contrast between the life some people get to li live and, 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 and the life, you know, masses of people get to live. And, you know, it struck me... Um, having seen, you know, in my last five years at Ogilvy, a lot of management changes, you know, and it struck me as very um, sad. Uh, okay, let me back up. Let me back up almost 20 years. About 20 years ago, I was put in, in charge of uh, an agency in Boston called Digitas. 
And, you know, they wanted some, it was a consulting agency. They wanted some creative flair. So they hired me. It's a big department. I had, um, you know, about 150 creatives and we couldn't fit all on one floor. And I knew if I sat on 17 and let's say three quarters of the creatives were on 17 and, or 60% were on 17 and 40% were on 16. If I sat on 17, the people on 16 would feel denigrated. They would feel they weren't on the cool floor. They would feel they were, there was something, you know, it's the same thing if you're a small shop and you're sitting eight offices away from the boss instead of next door to the boss. Yeah. It's like a hierarchy that you feel. Yeah. I knew it would be very um, hurtful um, to some people. And from a, you know, a semiotic sense from how it appeared, it was establishing a hierarchy that it, that I didn't want. So I had, you know, enough power to, to have an office on each floor. And I tried to divide my time equally because I thought that was important. And I learned then, because it was my first time having like the job, like you don't talk to someone sitting behind a desk. Right. Actually, we just took my dog to the veterinarian. I picked her up on Thursday, but she got down on the floor to talk to my boss, uh, my, my dog, yeah, my right. boss. And, but... <laughs> This is what people. This is what people do to show they're they're with you. Yeah, right. And what has happened, I think, much you know, in many ways in the agency world is, you know, the especially if you're creative, but probably it it affects every department, is, you know, the senior management are rarefied. They're off in their own wing. You don't need an office because we need collaboration. They all have offices. Uh, you can't take a black car home. They can. So the parallel, you know, to jump to the Kubrick, they're in a castle. They don't know what it means to be dirty. And they don't, you know, in the Kubrick movie, in Paths of Glory, the general is looking at a map and he says, I want you to take such and such a hill. He doesn't know that that's essentially suicide. Yeah. Because he's never down there. He's never left the castle. So, you know, that that was part of it. And then... The three, four, three, I think I have daughters who are grown, you know, 34 and 29. And I, I think even from when I was a kid, you know, maybe it was too much leave it to beaver or father knows best on TV. But I think we, we have this illusion that with the possible exception of Willie Loman, you know, in Death of a Salesman, that work is supposed to be kind of fun and enriching every day. It's supposed to be a blast, it's supposed to reward you at all times. But it's not. No. And, and even, you know, even when, you know, you're working, you know, even when the optics say, you know, I'm a, I'm a left-handed pitcher for the Cardinals, uh, and, you know, and I'm 11 and four so far this season, I'm doing great. Um, there's still somebody who wants my job right. or, you know, I'm six, six and my feet are hanging out the bed when, and when I'm staying in the holiday Inn in uh, Milwaukee and, you know, it sucks. And, and I mean, a lot of life just kind of like, you got to get through it and you can't. So the three, four, three or whatever my equation was, it's, you know, three days are usually pretty good. Three days three days where you want to like, what the, am I doing this for? I'm going to leave and never come back. And then four days, it's kind of like, yeah, you just kind of, I'm not saying you go through the motions, but you know, you're, you're, yeah, it's okay. 
and and that's the way most things are it's like yeah some people are having good days and they're at their best some people are at their worst and a lot of there's a lot of meh in there so if you go back and look at someone's whole story yeah there were days where they were jerks and there were days they were heroes uh, i went to a times a new york times talk and there was a marathon uh woman uh marath olympic marathoner and she said you know, I had already had this thesis, but she said when she was coached by the Nike team, um, they kind of said, you know, a third of your workouts, you're going to feel like you can beat the world. A third, you're going to feel like you can't make a junior high track team. And a third, you kind of put through the, put, put, put in the miles because you know you have to do the work. And the trick is when you feel like you can't make the high school track team, you draw on those days when you felt great and say, well, I'm going to push through it. And on the days you feel great, you say, well, you know, I'm going to enjoy this, but tomorrow's another day. Yeah, right. Who knows what tomorrow is going to bring me? And I think it's that way in advertising, too. I think it is, too. I think it's that way in business. I think it's like, you know, you have to give yourself a lot of grace for having those days, and then you have to just not get stuck in them. Yeah. You know, one of the things you wrote, and I thought it was really interesting because it's quite a moment in your journey, is you're out on your own now. You're a freelancer. And at first, I'm sure that was like kind of scary, just terrifying. So how's it going, man? Well, you know, there were, there were two parts to it, Steve. Um, one, and it, one part I think no one uh, talks about or no one um, thinks about or no one quite understands. Um, and it's taken me a while to get a hold of it, which is, you know, when you're older and in an agency and and even the largest agency isn't that large. Um, there's some kind of institutional love that forms around you. Sure. Like the young people look up to you. The people in your account know what you can, what they can turn to you for, and what you're good at. And and there's just like you walk into a room and people, oh well, George is here or whatever. And and that and you know you're 62 and there's you know, your, your kids have left the house already and you kind of have, you know, your office children and you have this whole thing and you have a place for your books and, you know, people are asking you, can I show you this piece of copy? It's not your job, but you do it because you're part in a sense of a community. And you're needed. And yeah. And then all of a sudden somebody calls you into a conference room and you're gone and you have, and that's, it's, so for me, it wasn't really a fear about losing money right? and like, how am I going to pay my mortgage or whatever? Um, it was really, it was really this sense of being exiled. Yeah. If you think about it almost from an immigrant point of view, like I'm leaving the home I love and I know love is a strong word and, and, you know, no, I get it. Based on what we were just talking about, yeah. but th there were there were feelings there. When you're with the troops and they're your people, there is a, f a feeling of love. It's your team. You're on a team. You know, sometimes yeah. it's imperfect, but it's still your team, man. Right. And I don't know. I don't think anyone considers it because, as much as you know, every job now is oh yeah, we're welcome to the team yeah uh that kind of bullshit yeah you're only a team there's that yeah. and there's the real actual team when you're in the trenches together and no one sees it because you're just sweating over something there's like the the actual genuine thing that forms between people and then there's the bs 
corporate right. team. Yeah, I get it. Right. I'm not stupid, and I, you know, I saw how Ogilvy was doing, and I had my boss, uh, who was the chief creative officer at Ogilvy, had been fired maybe a year before I was, and he had landed a job. I got fired ultimately in January, and but by September, we were kind of in late stage negotiations for me to at least freelance for him. Right. Uh, while, you know, if something happened, I didn't want to leave, but I felt like, okay, it was time, uh, or I saw that my time was coming. It would be a little bit like if, if I ran a clothing line for Husky Men, and then all of a sudden the creative director decided he was going to, he was going to, use the same name and just make it for skinny men. I'm out. <laughs> yeah, right. So, You're um, done. yeah, so I kind of knew, you know, my, my kind of time had come and I wanted to be prepared for it. And so I, you know, in terms of kind of having a place to go, I, 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 I wasn't allowed to work right away because of severance things, but I knew I had a place to go and I wasn't really worried about that. It was more that I felt stripped and you know the calculus that people don't really consider is you know how am i going to fill 70 hours a week yeah. this is pre-covid yeah right i mean you got to fill 70 hours a week you know my my older daughter was a a, a division one swimmer and so practice you know her weekly practice was seventy thousand yards of swimming and you know she's 18 and she's swimming 70,000 yards a week that's a lot of that's a lot of time so she blows out her shoulder all of a sudden she's got like 28 hours with nothing to do guess what happens um trouble so um you know it's the same thing that happens to old people you know you get i didn't get into trouble but you you're nervous you cry you get upset you don't know what you're going to do and then and then covid hit yeah that makes it a lot more fun. Yeah. So, you know, it was, it was kind of, it was nerve wracking. I bet. So now that you've been doing it a while, how uh, is your, how's it changing for you? What's the, what, what's the uh, culture of working with you and you? There's some parts of it that I really like in that, you know, I like the control and this sounds stupid almost, but the thing that I find myself saying a lot is that the uh, relationship between hard work and, and money yeah. is restored. Because if you're working for someone else, you're not an hourly worker and, you know, you're, you're killing yourself. And especially in a holding company uh, 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 system, you're not getting paid anymore. You're getting to keep your job. So and, and advancement and salary and raises don't really happen that much anymore. So, you know, the ratio between labor and, and pay is gone. So having that back is really good. Um, you know, I don't really have an internal governor, so I tend to work too much. Um, and you also, I'm, and I'm, uh, you know, I'd be interested in what you have to say about it. You, you also don't know if your busyness is how it's going to go or if it's an anomaly. Yeah, right. I, I mean, it's only been, you know, whatever, 18 months for me. So I haven't really had a slow period but then I don't say no to things. Yeah, right. So what if you do? Yeah. And so I'm still learning. Yeah, I think it's a, you know, running your own thing and being in charge of it, you know, we're a 
we're a fairly small agency. We keep it small on purpose. I don't want a huge team because I've never had to lay anyone off. And, you know, that's very purposeful. But anytime you're in business for yourself or you're out on your own, you, the one thing that you get good at over time is being comfortable with uncertainty. And that's something that when you're an employee, it's a very different feeling. So it's kind of the, the opposite side of the, you know, you get to see the fruits of your labor a lot better. You know, the input and output, like we do this, they like it, they rehire us, they pay us, just like with you. It's exhilarating. It feels good. Sometimes it goes really well. The other part of it is that you give up that it's on you to keep it going and it's on you for real. And I think it's just a different, like, you know, there are times that drives me a little nuts, but honestly, over the years, I've just gotten comfortable with it. It's just my reality now. Yeah, sometimes I feel, you know, I mean, I called my company George Co. And I, you know, I wanted to be a, a one a one person thing because, you know, it took me a long time in the business to realize, you know, either I have a unique approach or a unique way of thinking or something, but people are coming for me. And I didn't want them to come for me. Not that, you know, Charlie or Rich or Mark aren't better than I am, but they're coming for me. And so I didn't want... I really just wanted to to do, I didn't want to be an administrator. I didn't want to have meetings. I didn't really want to have status reports. I just wanted to do the work. I have, you know, some people who help me occasionally, occasionally I'll get, you know, I'll have something where I'll need a producer and I have an account director who works for me part time. Uh, and I have an art director who works for me when, you know, I need her or him. Um, but you know, usually, what I've found, and I don't know if you find, you know, have found a, a similar thing, is there's a lot of brands who don't really know what they're in business to do. <laughs> yeah, no, there are. And I mean, even even you know, when I was working at Ryanair or, or or IBM, it's like, I mean, I worked on IBM for 12 years. I can't tell you what they do anymore. I mean, I I think they need. Um, you know, to have their crystals red or something like, I don't know what business you're in. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's, true. I, it, it's gotta be more than just, you know, AI quantum and blah, blah, blah. I mean, so what, what do you guys do? I mean, how do you make my life better? I think being really close to your, to what your input and your output is, is like, it's harder in some ways, but it's also yours while you're doing it. So it's a, there's a lot of like, there are a lot of rewards and then there are some drawbacks. So you just, you know, it almost, you have to retune to it because it's the challenges and the things you put up with are different than what you're used to. Yeah. It's, it's, I find it hard to shut down. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. But, but you know, I'm, it's only been since, you know, March really of 2020. So it hasn't been that terribly long. So I've learned a lot in, you know, 18 months. Yeah. It's, and more good days than bad. Good. I'm glad. I think uh, I think that's one of the things you learn when you're running your own thing is you find that balance eventually, you know. And sometimes it's gonna just like the three four three. Sometimes it's gonna go wildly out of balance for a series of weeks or months, and you've got to rein it back in. And but you know, the bottom line of you being closer to what you actually do and delivering what what George delivers, I think is one of the great things about when you're doing your own thing and not working for a big company is that it's something you enjoy. You have to enjoy writing on some level or you wouldn't do it. It's funny because when you work for a big company, nobody just has one boss. 
you know, you have four or five, there might be nominally on paper, you report to this one, but everybody has a slightly different interpretation of how to do the job. And so a lot of your psychic energy is, well, Jeff is going to get pissed off if I actually do the writing myself, if I don't find a team to do this. But Steve wants me to do it because he knows I have a unique way of doing it. And Joan would love to have me do it, but she knows I bill out it too much. So she's going to want me to turn it over to, to Dennis, you know, at the end of 12 hours. And it's like, I just want to do the thing and not worry about any of the math. Yeah. And I think that's the freeing part of being in business for yourself. And we have a, we have a good sized team, but not so big that we have those kind of dynamics because I can't do what these other guys do. So I do what I do well, and I try to leave them the heck alone and let them do what they do well. And we don't have, once you get a little bit bigger than that, and I certainly have clients where I see this all the time, where their internal politics get in way in the way of doing the actual work. Right. So getting that calculus out of what you do every day, that's, you know, for when people are in big companies, I feel like they spend their half the day, half the day, that is their work. Navigating is the work instead of the work. And that's, that's really, that consumes a lot it of does. energy. And bandwidth. It's like living in an abusive home. Yeah. <laughs> because you're always kind of, what happens if I go into this room? Is it empty? Or is someone going to yell at me? Yeah, right. What's going to happen if I go to this meeting? And like, yeah, I've worked inside large organizations, and that is absolutely true. Yeah, so it's, 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 that's free. Yeah, I bet it is. Yeah, well, also the fact that you write every day and you put out an amazing amount of content. And I, I have no idea how you... I don't even know how I do it. I bet you don't, but you have, you have a gift for that and obvious a lot of talent for it. But, you know, being able to communicate the way you do, I think there's probably a real need and a real drive to keep, you know, doing that, that kind of work. And I think that's probably what makes you so good at what you do. I mean, some of it, you know, um, I'll attribute to... Um, a woman I only know over the phone, a uh, recruiter called Christy Cordes, who um, really helped me. And about 20, 25 years ago, she's never placed me or anything like that. I don't know if I would, if she was walking by on the street in front of me, if I'd know who she is. But we stayed connected. And basically about 20, 25 years ago, when LinkedIn was coming in, she said, George, people are going to start looking at portfolios in an entirely different way. Yeah. And a portfolio is kind of a retrospective on your work. But today we can show what we do every day. And that's, that's a change in orientation where I could show you, I mean, I'm proud of my portfolio, don't get me wrong, but, you know, that's all work that went through committees and, and, you know, 97 rounds of revisions and, great directors and this and that and the other thing and and it's all work I did in the past where this is something the paint's still wet so you get to you know so if you take the advertising kind of dicta you know show not tell well I get to show every day what I can do and you don't have to like it every day I don't care because I'll have something different tomorrow and you don't get to edit it <laughs> no right. one else gets to yeah. edit it you know so it's like very much you and your brand, which I think is really cool. And it's an ad. I mean, yeah, it it's, is. it's, it's, it's an ad. So it's like, that's what I do. Yeah. And I'm a, you know, like most people, mo the people I don't trust are the people who say they're not competitive, but, uh, like most people, I'm very competitive yeah. 
And it's like, you go do it better. Yeah, right. It's fine with me. If Here's you can do it I better, do. more power to you. Yeah. And if you want a yeah. different flavor, go get a different flavor. Right. But this is my right. thing. You know, I think that's really great, man. So what do you think the, I'm going to ask you a couple of just quick questions. What do you think the common traps for like creative directors and copywriters are in the industry right now? Well, I mean, for me, and I've always been extremely hands-on, it's, it's getting hands-off. It's, it's, you know, I've heard creative directors talking to account people and they call the people who work for them, the creatives. No, you're a creative. Once you've like let go kind of your craft and you're an administrator, like go home. You know, it's, it's like, you should be proving you can, I mean, that, that to me is the fight. And maybe it's my own ego and my fear of getting older and whatnot. But, you know, even, even now, you know, I'll get a call. Usually I deal right with clients at a pretty senior level, but you know, a K, you know, five times a year, eight times a year, I'll get a call directly from an agency and agencies don't pay as well because they've got to, you know, pay for the rent in the offices in Malaysia and, um, you know, Buenos Aires. And so they can't give me the money. Um, but I do it because I want to make sure that my standards are at least as high as the standards in the industry. Um, and, you know, I think if you lose that as a creative director, um, you know, that you're doing the work, you can still do it. And so I guess part of me always felt like as a creative director, I should be around to take the worst assignments and help on the best. Good for you, man. Because to your point a second ago, you kind of want to be able to free people who can do things that you can't do. But for you to, for you to do that, you have to, you have to work. Yeah, you do. And you have to like know when to get out of the way. And that's interesting because the reason I started this podcast and you know, we're, we're, we haven't been around a ton of time, but this is my passion. This is what I love to do. And honestly, like there is no one out there telling the story of people who do the work. Like it's always on podcasts. You always hear from the CMO. You always hear from someone at the top of the food chain because it's like, you're trying to put stars of, of industry on your podcast. And I just want to talk to the people it's who It's a name act, on the marquee. Right. Yeah. And I want to talk to the people who make the sausage. Right. You know, because it is messy and it's crazy and it's cool. And I think all of us are storytellers in different ways. So if I talk to like a CEO, I usually pick someone who's a great storyteller, you know, and for you, I want to talk to you because I read your stories and they are ads, but they're, it's beautiful storytelling. Thank you. You know, it's just beautiful storytelling. So what do you think is one of the most challenging things when you're working with other people with clients or with someone that you're, you know, trying to help about storytelling that people don't understand. You know, it's funny. I can do like a whole stand-up routine yeah, on this. I bet. <laughs> um, because, you know, the phrase storytelling is, is it's come into vogue maybe the last five to seven years. It has. And along the same time it's come into vogue, what else has happened, in my opinion, is people have forgotten that we're supposed to have fun at work. We're supposed to kibitz around. We're supposed to tell jokes in meetings and, and so on and so forth. So 
I mean, you'll notice with me, I never give a fast answer. I mean, if you ask me the capital of Kansas, I can give a, a fast answer. But chances are, I'll say, well, you know, it used to be this, and then we moved. They moved it here because of, there was a slavery issue, a free state, slave state. You know, I'll probably have a little more complicated answer. But what I found is, you know, you'll have a meeting on storytelling, and then they'll say, well, George, um, could you talk to us about what you do? And you'll say, uh, you know, it's funny. Many, many, many years ago, I read this ad, and I think it's a perfect example of storytelling. And you see everyone in the room going. You know, come on, come on, come on, speed it up. You know, and so it's like they want the storytelling without the storytelling. With the, without the, but they want it in a seven-second soundbite. It does. You can't get them both. No, you can't. You absolutely can't. So, so either you're true to wanting these stories, and I mean, a story has a natural arc. Yep. You have to live with bits of it. You know, or or let's just not use the term. Like, if you just want me to read off a PowerPoint slide, I'll do it. Yeah, and also if you want to produce, like, a gag or a bit, like, a really quick gag and a really quick bit that's going to make someone smile because it's a little thing of content, fine. That's a thing. We can do that. But it's not a story. Like, a story has a beginning, middle, and an end. <laughs> it has an arc. And it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm from a theater directing background, so I have the same pet peeve. It's like... Stories work because they work, and they will always work. Right. I mean, if you ever looked at um, Kurt Vonnegut, you can I can send it to you. There's an old film of Kurt Vonnegut that's um, called The Shape of Stories. It's only about four minutes. Please send me and, that. And I think for his doctoral thesis or his master's thesis, he literally graphed stories. So he says, you know, I'm going to call the story Man in Hole. Oh, there's a man in a hole. You know, it's dark and it's raining. Oh, he gets out of the hole. I mean, that's a story. And and you kind of have to talk about, you know, this is Roger. He fell into a hole. It's wet. There's there's worms. It's disgusting. Oh, there's a twig. He grabs onto the twig. Oh, he pulls himself up. He's out. I mean, that's kind of a story. And you can't just say, yeah, this guy fell in a hole. He got out. That's not interesting. I could make that story interesting. But you got to give me a little time. You know what? I'm so glad you brought that up because I, was ta I talked to Ken Marcus. You know, I know you know him. And we talked a lot about, you know, brands kind of getting away in this just lately in the last, you know, I don't know how many, many years, getting away from using comedy and starting to really talk about purpose. And that's fine. Some brands, that works great. Sometimes I'm not walking around thinking about your purpose. Maybe I just need to be entertained and told a story. I want a hamburger. Yeah. I, I, you know, like, it'd be great if there's no plastic in the ocean, but I want a hamburger. Right. Right now, I just want to be pleased because right, yeah. I'm a consumer. So right. I think that, like, that rub is, is something that's going on in the industry yeah. right now. And yeah. sometimes it really does work. Sometimes the heartstrings are the perfect things to pull. Other times, it's the funny bone, you know? And it's a different technique for a different product at a different time. So exactly. And I see you doing both in your writing. You know, you wrote one thing, you've written a couple things that have touched me like really deeply. And then a few that have just made me laugh out loud. Yeah. Usually I try to be funny on Fridays. Yeah. Well, I appreciate readership it. Is low. There's some good laughs in there, man. Like, well, I'll, I'll talk to you about them at some point. So what do you think? I know as, as a copywriter, I'm sure, and this is, this may be with new clients or people you've worked with. Is there a myth about writing? that you could speak to? Is there a, th a misconception that people think? Well, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of um, pretentiousness around it. You know, there's a lot of like, I'm not in the mood or I'm not inspired or I'm not this. Yeah. You don't, 
I, I think that's a luxury if you if you do something for a living. I mean, if you were taking your Volvo into the garage and the guy said, I'm just not in the mood to drain the oil. Um, I have to feel it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there, and I'm not saying that what we do isn't more creative and, and brings up more, more bits of the soul or whatever. But sometimes, you know, the, the hardest bit of writing is just deciding I'm going to write and it doesn't have to be perfect but I'm going to start putting things down and start shaping it and start having something to work from. And, you know, a lot of times I'll say to clients, I can, I'm very fast and clients will say, well, you know, wow, you did that so fast. And I'll say, well, well, listen, because I don't like to talk about writing theoretically. I, I, I want to, I want to show you something and then we have a common ground to work on. So I don't want to say I'm going to give you a piece of writing that's very emotional and it's going to talk about the soul of this and your and your drive for, to do, accomplish that. I want to show it to you and you say, that's really good. I like that feeling, but you you left out this part. OK, now I know what I have to do and I can I can move it ahead. So I feel like that is just I mean, maybe I'm just a lucky person in that I've gotten over that fear of putting things down. Uh, but it's taken me a lot of practice too. I mean, the blog, I've probably written 2 million words on the blog. So I have, I have more practice than you. Yeah. So practice. Right. Yeah. I think so that's, practice. That's great advice. I mean, I think it's, you know, for anything you're going to be good at and anything you're going to do, do it, you know, do it when you don't feel like it. Exactly. I mean, if you're a, a ball player, I mean, I think about the hours and hours and hours you spend just tossing a ball to a friend, it, like it where it's where it's completely mechanical. You know, you're not aiming, you're not putting zip on it. You're just going through the motions that you're building the muscle memory. And I mean, you kind of have to do that. Yeah. And I think with I think with copywriting and things that are in the quote unquote creative field, um, you know, it is, there is muscle memory. And you know, what happens is that moment of inspiration where someone puts you on the spot, when you have muscle memory, you're going to have something to do at that moment. Well, I just got through one of those instances. I mean, literally, um, I had my first business trip as a soloist, uh, about a month and a half ago. And it was, you know, it was for a client, a brand new client. It was for a field I know nothing about. And I, I actually missed a flight. I showed up to the meeting late and there were about, I, I thought there was going to be about 10 people in the room and there were 75. And they asked me, I mean, almost literally to tap dance out a manifesto after about an hour and, you know, in front of everybody and it's Nothing like getting know, put on the spot. Yeah. But you know, it's, I mean, I, IBM slash Ogilvy was a lot like that too. Um, where, you know, it's, it's 1030 at night and somebody needs a four page print insert and you go, where's the brief George, you'll figure it out. And I mean, I'm sorry, that's real. You know, that's, you, you know, I, I've written a couple times on, uh, the blog lately. Um, I read a book not too long ago about this general, I'm going to forget his name. Uh, he was a world war II general. Uh, Max something or other. He was one of the few Jewish generals, and he he was involved in the um, 
the D-Day invasions, and he became known as the Panzer Killer. He was uh, wildly successful, and as a um, as a fighting general. And again, back to the paths of glory. A lot of the generals would stay in the back, and he had something the French call, and I can't pronounce French at all, uh, coup de oil. It's like Trump to oil, but the yeah. word coup, and it it really just means battlefield vision. So. If you think about, like, uh, if, if you read um, some books on, say, the Civil War, when Robert E. Lee was in Gettysburg, he knew where the cannons should be. He knew where these troops should be. He knew where these troops should be. So did the opposing generals. That's why it's such a colossal battle. But, you know, you can read the battlefield and make decisions in ways. I mean, I know this sounds like Malcolm Gladwell in, and make decisions in a way that it's not cognitive. It's, it's, I, I did a spot. I don't think it's on my reel for Watson with uh, Sir Ridley Scott. Um, and, and he was in conversation, you know, Joe Pitka was the director. So you have two colossal egos and I had to sit in with them while they were talking about what we we're going to do and how I'm going to write the script and a little daunting. Um, Cause for many reasons, and I guess, and Pitka and Ridley Scott know each other, and I guess they're as much as Pitka's friendly with anyone, they're friendly. And Ridley Scott says something kind of offhanded, and he says, well, I've shot 2,000 commercials. When I come into a room, I know where the lighting's going to go. I know where I'm going to put the camera. And Pitka, being competitive and insecure, says immediately, well, I've shot 4,000. <laughs> But but my but my point I mean that's funny yeah, but my my point is it's the same way if you were sitting next to Ted Williams in the dugout he would see a guy puts out his tongue when he's throwing a curve his his elbows dipping in a little bit you know and I'm going to pick up weaknesses and he would see things that other great players can't see and you know that's why we have to pay attention. I mean, you have to kind of stay, I mean, I goof around as much as anyone, but you have to um, stay tuned into the situation because you will get called on at the last minute to, to step up and what do you think? Yeah, and the reason for all those reps and all the muscle memory is that you have to be able to trust yourself in the moment because it isn't, it isn't in here all the time. It isn't like, oh, let me think about this and I'll come up with something. It's instinct and gut. And it's all that muscle memory and all that writing or directing or whatever it is. Exactly. That tells you, you know exactly where the lights go, no matter what. Yeah. And you can't really, there's no um, logic to it. There, you just have to sometimes, you know, if you look at a good cook, they'll just put a little more salt they in. They know. haven't even tasted it. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just a feeling. Yeah. And that's one of, I think one of my favorite thing about working with creative people that are great at what they do and I performed improv for years and have a theater background. So the essence of improv is trusting yourself. You have no, I mean, you're up there, you have no idea what you're going to say. Like, so you could say something terrible, shocking, funny, whatever it's going to be, but you've done enough reps that you just get out of your own way and you know, you know, so same thing with writers, same thing with everything. Yeah. And, and the consequences are not that great. Yeah. <laughs> if something screws up, right. I mean, you're not, we are not, you know, heart surgeons. And, you know, if, if I say something and I almost always say, well, this, this could be dumb, but what if we did this? And, 
oh, you know, that's not really dumb. I think that's that's actually pretty smart. And, you know, it's based on having been doing it for a lifetime and, you know, and all that muscle memory. And, you know, 80% of what we do is just to look at a, look at a problem upside down and backwards. Yep. Um, because if you, if you tell it the same way, it's going to be boring. Yeah. I mean, that is really the essence of it. So let me ask you another question. I've got a couple more and then I, I promise I'll let you go on time, which is coming up. So this last year with COVID and, you know, you said you went on your first solo trip. What was the highlight of this past year for you? Cause I know it was a deeply odd year. I had a good year financially. I've built, I, I won't call it a book cause I don't know how much it's going to repeat. Yeah. Um, a business. But I think beginning to gain some of that confidence that the phone is going to ring or, you know, I'm going to get a call. It usually comes when you least expect it. And then number, that's part of it. And I think the, the corollary part is having confidence in pricing yourself well. And in a sense, separating yourself from the pack through pricing. Because it's, it's, it's easy to be one of the gang. And it's harder to stand out. And, you know, I think, you know, obviously no MBA here, but I think, you know, a pricing strategy is really important. And I think, you know, if you looked at an Apple computer and a Dell computer from a component cost point of view, they're probably $4 difference is my guess, or a Hyundai and a Mercedes. But to have the confidence to charge the premium, because all that spills out of that premium, the quality, the confidence, the integrity, the logic, the presentation, the thoughtfulness, you know, it takes the easiest thing in the world is in a world of kind of fast food restaurants to open up another fast food restaurant. And I, I think you want to you want to establish a little bit of i mean it's it's marketing you want to you want to establish kind of a differentiation so it took me a long time a lot of sweat to start putting to you know when i started putting proposals together because holy shit, how can i ask for that much as a day rate yeah right what are you crazy the, the rest of the industry is asking this and i'm, I'm going to ask for this plus and I'm never going to get this. And I would, I would perseverate. I would talk to friends. I would talk to my wife. And uh, I don't know if you should do that, George. That's a lot of money. And then I just, you know what? You know, I yeah. At some point, you have to kind of mantraize yourself, like uh, I'm the best there is. It's not saying much, but I'm going to do it. And you know, and if you don't get the work, then you have to reevaluate. Yeah, but if you get the work, and also, you know, you've got a combination that I think is really rare and very marketable in that you have an extremely clear voice and a very clear style. And, you know, I've, I've talked to other guests about this and a few friends about, you know, it's all about attraction. You know, the clients that need you are going to find you. And then the price for what you're going to deliver in quality is well worth it because they're going to be the people that want to pay for that. And they're going to get what they pay for. And then there's going to be some people that are like, no, I can't, I don't want that. You know, and that the thing with that is you don't want to work with those people either. Exactly. I mean, there's, you know, every once in a while, there's someone, you know, who literally calls me out of the blue and I like them as a person. I'll get on the call with them and we kibitz around. We're having a fun time. And 
and they ask for a proposal and I send them a proposal and you know they fly away like a you know like a bird and yeah. it's like well you know what I could chase you I could say what happened I could I could negotiate but you know my wife and I my, my wife really bought this little house up here in Connecticut and needs a lot of work and I guess you know, the first couple of times we had workmen come in, she said, well, is that negotiable? And they look at her like, are you crazy? Yeah, it is. Like, I, That's what it I, costs. I've worked my whole life. This is... <laughs> I'm good at this. This is what it costs. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, we're choosing, we're not choosing, where, you know, where the trillionaires buy from, but we're choosing a good quality and that's why we're choosing it. We could choose, you know, we could choose a handyman to do this stuff, but... We're choosing, you know, professionals. Well, you know, there's a lot of safety in that for the person buying. And there's a lot right. of like, you know, and that's why I think, you know, there's, it's a better way to go about it by setting a price that works for you because you're going to connect the people that want to pay it and don't run away are the people you should be working with. If they're trying to get you down a couple hundred dollars, like, you don't, you don't want, I mean, what, what's, what's the difference, boys and girls? And if you're that far away, it's not a good fit. You know, if you're further away than that. So yeah, good for you. I'm glad. I'm glad it's going well, man. Because your talent is just it, it's extraordinary, and I'll be following you. I'll be looking at your posts every morning. That's how I, I read your stuff every morning, man. I love it. So I've got one final question for you, and I'll let you go have your evening. This is a question I always like to ask everyone. Um, if you were going to talk to your younger self, what advice would you give yourself at this point? Without being um, a pushover. You know, I would say, make sure you're raising your hand a lot. Yeah. You know, there's a, a, a lot of young people, and the question was about young people, think if they ask for something, they're asking for a favor instead of doing a favor. Yeah. Right? Like, right. hey, hey, Steve, um, I'd like to show you my portfolio. Please, you know, you're, I'm doing, uh, you're doing me a favor because you're going to take time from your busy day to look at my portfolio and critique it rather than, hey, Steve, I have a great portfolio. Your life is gonna be easier if you start giving me work. And, you know, I don't know that I could have done that at 23 or 24, but by the same token, it wasn't all that comfortable doing at 57 or 58 either. And, and it's a little bit, to go back to some earlier questions, it's a little bit what I have to do now. I mean, a lot of times I get you know, what I kind of jokingly called dump truck brief, where my the visual in my head is, you know, a giant dump truck of uh, PowerPoint decks backing up to my yard and beep, beep, beep. It lifts up and there's 58, you know, PowerPoint decks and George, you figure it out. And, you know, you can only spend so much time figuring out, then you have to put words on paper. And so you're kind of going, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to figure this out. Did I get it or not? I don't know going into I'm it. I'm going to step up and try. I mean, I think that I think that and raising your hand um, is yeah, some of the best the same advice. same thing, really. Yeah, and it's some of the best advice for young people or any time in your career where, and I agree with you, I've observed when someone raises their hand and just wants to help someone else, you know, to honestly really just want to help, that's going to get you really far. Yeah. Just try to help, you know, because a lot of times right. when you do, that's when people realize, wow, this guy's really talented. This, this yeah. woman's really talented. Yeah. So that's great, man. Thank you so much yeah. for today. Hey, like, my pleasure, Steve. I, I had a blast talking to you, man. Yeah. Likewise.